Welcome everybody. My name is Alexander Grieb. I am working at SAP as Customer Advisory Lead for S4HANA Strategy and I'm your host here at the SAP Experts Podcast. Sean Epstein, Adam Daywalker and me wanted to do this episode about private equity at SAP already since autumn last year. Gotta admit, it was not easy to find a date where we could meet because Sean is in the US and I'm here in Germany and Finally, we thought we would settle in April, meet in Waldorf and have a great conversation about a highly interested topic, which I know absolutely not as much about as I would like. So I was really looking forward to this. Turns out 2020 is a bit different than we all expected. And so we are stuck here in our home offices, growing birds and wearing hoodies. And, you know, I, I always try to avoid remote podcast recording because I just like the face-to-face -face discussion. But all we have to do at the moment, of course, is to give in to circumstances. So let's make the best out of it. And so we're here with a nevertheless wonderful remotely recorded episode because Sean's such a candid conversation partner. And believe me, it's a pure joy to listen to him and his experience as Senior Vice President and Global Head of SAP Private Equity. So I hope you, my dear listeners, are and stay healthy and well and You enjoy this absolutely interesting episode as much as I do, because I learned a lot on this episode of the SAP Experts Podcast. Hi, Jean. Great to have you. It's great to be here. Unfortunately, in times like these, first, we are not sitting face to face. I'm sitting here in Bavaria. You're sitting, I think, somewhere... Mm -hmm. Washington. I'm right outside all yeah, I'm right outside Washington, DC in Arlington, Virginia. Okay, all right. Um, but unfortunately, and this is the second part in times like these, of course, I have to ask you like how were your last 14 days? How were your experiences? Oh wow. Um, well, I have three small children, and my wife is a full-time attorney, and obviously I have a full-time gig as well. So um, we've turned into homeschoolers. <laughs> which has been a big change. And we kind of had to go back and forth between trying to think that we were going to be professors emeritus uh, and realizing that, hey, neither of us are teachers. Uh, we uh, are, are learning this as our children are. How do you deal with homeschooling? How do you deal with quarantining? How do you deal with the fact that you're not seeing your friends? And so for us, it's I'll be honest, it's been a learning experience, right? We are using old-fashioned workbooks that worked when I was in grade school. We are um, leveraging some of the, the wonderful apps that are out there for children. We are looking to other parents, asking for great tips and tricks that they've come up with. We are fluctuating between a schedule and no schedule. Right now, as an example, my nanny, who's Ethiopian, is downstairs doing a social studies and home economics class by teaching the kids about Ethiopia and cooking a traditional Ethiopian stew. So... Life is completely different for us right now. Uh, normally, I'm on the road probably about 60, 70% of the time internationally, and uh, I am now here at home. The silver lining is I get to have breakfast with my children, lunch with my children, dinner with my children, and of course, my wonderful wife, and uh, we're making the most of it. Uh, the, you couldn't have thought about this and what it would mean. The solace is that Everybody else is dealing with this. And I think that the world has adapted to it 
And I know certainly SAP is a culture where we've adapted to it and our, our teams are resilient. And on the family side of things, you know, our kids are resilient. They're going to get through this uh, and it'll be a memory they remember for the rest of their lives. And uh, it will actually all be okay. It's just going to take some time. Absolutely. And um, I think it's at least in a, let's say, you know, business reality, COVID has happened to be something like a huge equalizer. People you would have met in completely different setups, wearing a tie and a suit, you suddenly meet wearing a hoodie uh, via video conferencing and so on. And you see like uh, I was doing our last virtual meeting with, with my customer today in the morning. Unfortunately, forgot to lock my door. So after like five minutes into um, the workshop, the virtual workshop, I was attacked by a five-year-old with a lightsaber. <laughs> uh, but this is uh, about 2020 and the same like here um, kindergartens are closed school are closed um, everybody's trying to make the best out of it uh, people are growing together but but still some people say of course like if schools and kindergartens remain closed for much longer parents probably will find a vaccine sooner than scientists so. <laughs> <laughs> for sure for sure How, how do you see it in your industry? We are talking about private equity. And um, I'm not sure if it's too early already to ask this question, but do you see something like a trend, how your customers are affected with what has happened in the last 30, 40 weeks? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so our team is focused on building world-class relationships between and partnerships between SAP and private equity firms with the goal of making sure that all of the companies that they own um, are successful. And right now they both, meaning the private equity firm and the businesses that they own are facing very different challenges than they faced two, three, four weeks ago. The companies themselves that are owned by private equity are, are very often highly leveraged so have, they have taken on a tremendous amount of debt during the transaction when they were acquired by the private equity firm. They're often being run uh, in a very tight cash flow basis. So these companies uh, are, are really worried, as many are, and no differently in some ways, how are they paying payroll on Friday? Um, how are they looking at future growth plans? Do they have to be put on hold? Uh, how long do they have to be put on hold? Uh, what is it that's essential and what is it that's not essential? I think that's actually something personal as well, right? Which is all of us are starting to say, is this really that important? Does this need to be done today? Does this need to be done in a week? Or can this be done a little later? And so we're having to rationalize some of those choices at a company level, right? We're talking about rationalizing priorities, people, and resources. And that means some pretty hard choices. What do I do about my workforce? Do I keep them? Do I furlough them? Do I lay them off? Do I even understand who I can and can't lay off? And that's a, those are big emotional decisions. These are people's lives that are at stake here. At the same time, from a business continuity perspective, these companies have to push through, right? They've still got to build their widgets. They've still got to deliver their widgets. They've still got to make sales of those widgets in the future. And they're finding every possible way to do that, whether it's jumping on video and, and doing sales calls that way, 
Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's you know restricting travel and uh, moving everything online, it, it, it's a totally different world for them. For PE firms, the silver lining in some of this, and it, it feels somewhat morbid to say it, but the silver lining in this is that prior to the COVID-19 crisis that we're dealing with, valuations were extremely high. And there was a ton of competition for deals. And many firms were priced out of deals that they wanted. Uh This potentially provides an opportunity for private equity firms who are sitting on trillions of dollars in dry powder, meaning capital they have to spend. And this provides a bit of an opportunity for them to provide a cash infusion to businesses that they can now get much cheaper than they would have a month ago that need that capital to grow and where they had previously already seen growth opportunities. So I think for private equity firms, on one hand, you're dealing with the same challenges that every owner of every business is. How do I keep the lights on? How do I continue to grow my business? How do I deal with my workforce? How do I prioritize my future plans? And then private equity firms are looking at how do I take advantage of this situation in a fiscally responsible manner that aligns with what our limited partners have deployed capital or have asked us to deploy capital to do, to buy businesses. So they're facing a little bit of a different challenge. It's sort of a different wrinkle for them at the firm ownership level versus the portfolio company level. You said some very interesting things because probably, um, let's assume in a few months, this, at least from a medical standpoint, will be sorted out. I hope so. Um, and in, a, in an economical sense, um, those private equity companies will, of course, meet a lot of, let's call it burnt soil, because probably companies will have gotten out of business and so on, that capital that is there in the dry is needed. Do you expect uh, something like a rally after this? I do. I think there's, well, there's two things here, right? One is a lot of private equity firms have already, um, had already planned to sell businesses that they had owned. A lot of them, and you're seeing this today, you're seeing APAX, CVC, Carlisle, Blackstone, KKR, all in recent days back away from exiting companies that they had planned on exiting, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a change. And I think from the guidance we're hearing from our private equity partners, they're probably going to put those exits on hold for eight, 12 or more months, uh, therefore going into 2021 on things that they wanted to exit in 2020. Right. So they're going to still hold those businesses for longer. On the other side of things, generally in an economic downturn, which we do believe is is what we'll face coming out of this crisis for obvious reasons, there is a significant buying opportunity. And we do believe that the second half of the year, again, this is making some assumptions that flattening the curve is working, that quarantining and staying in place is working that preventing large gatherings, keeping kids out of school, all the disruption we're facing now, this is under an assumption that over the next few months, it will get better. And based on that, there's a fundamental belief that there will be a huge uptick in transaction volume. Now, one of the ways that we think this is gonna change is there's gonna be a lot more corporate divestitures 
of non-essential parts of a business. So if you're a $10 billion business and you have a $200 million department inside your business that isn't all that profitable, isn't core, and can be carved out without disrupting the greater business, those are the businesses that are going to be putting up for sale, right? Those are the deals that we're going to see a lot of. So we think instead of seeing a large corporate acquisition volume increase, we're going to see a lot of corporate carve-outs and divestitures, which are absolutely the wheelhouse of a ton of firms out there. And at the valuations, they'll probably be able to get them. Uh, probably a good time to capitalize in the latter part of the year. So also probably we'll, we will have something like a re-evaluation of certain industry. Like in the same way, for example, uh, companies at the moment re-evaluate their strategy um, concerning us, for example, the way they talk with us. Because, of course, the last, let's say, 12, 18 months were probably had different focuses. Like, for example, now when, let's say, more, I call it conservative values are suddenly getting on the table again, companies realize that they need to have the transparency, that they need to know where the assets are. They have to be able to plan, to, to simulate, to build scenarios when parts yeah. of their supply chain have broken back. So probably it will set a lot of things straight again, in your opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, I think there's going to be a bit of a reckoning and getting back to the basics. Um, so whereas normally private equity firms, again, there are exceptions to the rule, but most private equity firms, for example, aren't aggregating the spend of all of their portfolio companies and using the supplier leverage they have as a giant construct, right? Owning hundreds, if not thousands of companies who all are spending money on everything from uh, pencils uh, 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 to computers uh, to software. And traditionally speaking, most PE firms aren't utilizing that leverage that they have as a buyer. We think that that's going to change. And we think that will become more uh, popular than it has been in the past, where it was a few firms that did that. We think that the next 20, 30, 50 big firms are going to start to do that, where they're going to really start to aggregate spend. They're going to look for who's getting the best price on pencils. They're going to look for who's getting the best terms on pencils, net 30, net 60, next 90. They're going to use that leverage to push back at suppliers and try to negotiate better prices. They're also well aware that if you push suppliers too much, you're actually cutting off your nose to spite your face, so to speak, right? Because you're suddenly, if you make them unprofitable, they can't deliver good services. So yeah, you got a cheaper pencil, but the pencil's cheaper. It's yeah. a race that doesn't work and it doesn't stay sharp, right? So th th there is a point where that can, can, can break. But I think that's one area of discipline that people uh, at, a, at a firm level are going to kind of go back to. Why do I not think about this a little bit more like holding companies do? Second, I think you bring up a really good point. One of the biggest issues, especially when you're buying family off uh, family businesses um, or you're buying carve outs of big companies, but really small parts. So that example of a $10 billion company buying a few hundred million uh, euro portion of that business, uh, you know, that that may not be in the best order from a, a data integrity perspective. It may not be in the best order uh, from a uh, 
predictive uh, analytics capability uh, perspective. So, so basically, are you getting good, clean data when you buy these companies? Not always. Should mm-hmm. you be spending more time right up front, making sure you have a single version of the truth, that you have the tools uh, in place to be able to simulate events like this? Absolutely. Uh, that's not something that PE firms have prioritized as much as they will now. Uh, that will become something that it becomes even more important. I think from a finance perspective, uh, good old fundamental basics on the finance side. Have they been as focused on mature finance organizations? I think they're going to focus on the, that function, that function being uh, world-class uh, and not accepting a, a medium level of maturity out of your finance department. Your supply chain, especially your digital supply chain and knowing who your backup suppliers are, I think we're going to go back to some discipline that we saw after previous pandemics uh, and other catastrophes that have occurred across the globe where it's like anything. You know, you go and you 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 do the good housekeeping, then you realize how important it is, then you grow lax, and then a pandemic hits, right? We, we, we dealt with this during SARS. We dealt with this during the avian flu. We've dealt with this uh, after a, a, a nuclear reactor issues. We've seen this disruption in the supply chain, and we said, oh, we're going to spend a lot of time. We're going to be really sophisticated. We're going to prioritize supply chain. Then we were lulled into a sense of, uh, of confidence that really wasn't there. And those companies that have lagged behind in those capabilities are the ones that are going to be hardest hit. They're going to have the hardest time to recover. And I think whether it's a PE back business or a non-PE back business, they're going to realize that these are, the, these are business lines of business that need to be much more functional and much more uh, uh, optimized. Well, since, since we both are unfortunately already in the age that we have experienced some, let's say, global crisis in our lives, yeah. we, we still can, let's say, come to the point of saying, um, what was right like after 2001? What was right after 2008 and so on? Yeah. Still is right after 2020. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. So these basics, we maybe we have to re- be remembered about them. People have again to talk about this, but from a certain point, um, that that's good news, I think, for anybody of us. Yeah. yeah. And it can give hope, of course. I, I agree. I mean, I completely agree. I think this is absolutely the the when again when we're out of this immediate crisis, there's going to be a lot of retrospective post-mortem reviews of how we were or were not prepared, how we did or did not handle effectively the challenges that this pandemic meant to our business. And and while I don't believe that there's a silver bullet that um, or a perfect answer to how to deal with a pandemic, Right. I think what it will force businesses hopefully to do for a more sustainable period is have a good approach. Right. When a board asks the leadership the question of how are you preparing for a pandemic six months ago? They didn't expect you to have a perfect answer. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have a perfect answer. But if you are the head of supply chain and you're being asked that question by your board six months ago, your answer should have been. There are a lot of variables, but here's how we're approaching it, right? We have a readiness team, right? We have virtual uh, workforce capabilities in place. We've got redundancies in our supply chain. 
We've modeled a variety of scenarios from low, medium, and high disruption. And we at least have a logical, rational process and approach to how we're planning on dealing with it, knowing that no matter what we say we're going to do and how we think we're going to do it, it could very well be very different. But I do agree with you. People are going to go back to those basics. Smart businesses will go back to those basics, go back to what worked and what didn't, and we'll be better prepared for the future. And, and that's, look, we're learning breathing organisms, right? <laughs> by, by nature, as human beings. So the hope is that we learn from this experience. And, and knock on wood, there isn't a new pandemic anytime soon. But if you look at all the countries that face the SARS crisis, those are the countries that have faced this crisis far better, whether it's countries as a governmental industry, a, a, a governmental entity, or whether it's businesses inside of those affected regions. They're better prepared. Yeah. They've had better processes in place. They've had better technology in place. They had invested in virtual technologies already, right? They had adopted virtual technologies already. So I, I, I think, I hate to say there's some good that comes out of this because right yeah. now it doesn't feel like it to anybody. Yeah. Anyone who has SARS or has been affected by someone in their family who had it and God forbid had lost a relative, friend or family. No, this doesn't feel good. But perhaps there is some good in the fact that every once in a while you need to get knocked down not being knocked down, dealing with crisis is what leads to innovation. And that innovation makes you better the next time around. Coming, or let's say, pointing away a little bit from the actual things that we experience at the moment. Um, the, the pure reason we met was to talk about private equity. Mm -hmm. And I want to come a little bit back to that topic um, because we, we a little bit outlined a lot of it already, but if you would be asked what is the pure business model of a PE company, um, how would you break it down? Yeah, you know, there, there are relatively private equity businesses or private equity firms are, are relatively simple to understand at the highest level. So they are an entity that raises capital from outside investors and they raise that capital on a thesis that if I take your 500 million euro, 1 billion euro, 15 billion euro from a variety of what they call limited partners, right? And I deploy that in the Eastern European market manufacturing space, I'm going to be able to generate significantly greater returns than you would get in any other vehicle, right? That, that's, that's how they start the game is I know a space really well, I see an opportunity to pounce on the valuations in the Eastern European marketing sector or manufacturing sector. I believe there's a ton of opportunity there. That's where I'm going to deploy my capital. And then they go out and they find those businesses that meet that criteria and look at the valuations and make decisions as to which of those companies they're going to purchase. Now, when they purchase these companies, they often uh, buy them with a tremendous amount of debt right? So their businesses are leveraged much more so than non-private equity-backed businesses. And their goal is to, in a very short window of time, turn the businesses from good to great or from bad to good. But the key point is, in a short amount of time, that's what's really different. They are not there to buy the business and hold it for 10 years, at least most PE firms. They're there to buy the businesses hold them for three to five years and turn around and sell them at a premium. That's their goal. 
So in many ways, they're very similar to people who flip homes. And so you're buying your house, you're fixing up the house, and you're selling the house for a lot more money than you bought it for. It's a pretty simple model. So I don't think that model is fundamentally um, going to change in the current crisis all that much. That will remain the most basic elements. What it does mean, though, is for PE-owned businesses, there's only so much that, that the board, the owners, the PE firm are willing to do in that three to five years. So they've got to be very, very judicious about their priorities. It's not 15 priorities in five years. Private equity investors, the board of directors from the PE firm, they've got three, four, five things they want to do in five years. That's it. And so the interesting thing is that most of the time, that's all that they do. And they are laser light focused on getting those things done. So these businesses have significant guardrails around where they can invest, what their priorities are, and in any way add to or remove those priorities. That's a big difference between PE-backed businesses and non-PE-backed businesses. The last thing that's different on the PE-backed business side, so private equity-owned businesses versus non-private equity-owned businesses, more often than not, if you are a PE-backed business, whether it's hiring a lot of people, building a manufacturing plant, or investing in software like SAP provides, the private equity firm itself is the final, uh, the final authority as to whether that investment can be made. It's not being done down at the line of business level. It's being done at the private equity firm level. That's a real big difference between PE-backed businesses and non-PE-backed businesses. That's very interesting because um, from, from my perspective, what I see, which is an element which is quite often overlooked in the, let's say, scope of, of the work that a PE company does is it's that they not just like buying and selling and uh, because this has a sometimes for some people a little bit not very a positive annotation yeah? it's, it's 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 like you buy something you you try to to make your own profit and then you sell it sounds a little bit heartless but i think a very important aspect in all of that which is quite often overlooked is the let's say the supporting function. Um, I've worked, for example, in my past career at companies which were owned by PE companies. And what I was always surprised of was this heavy element of, of consultancy that PE companies really were not there like to um, just... Um, be part of, of, of the management team or let's, let's say overlook it and so on, but they really offered services all the time. And this helped companies to, to grow, to maybe mature, to get rid of like uh, child's diseases that they still had when they were maybe a startup or something like this. So um, I think this is an element which probably um, is something where you say might be growing or might be a bigger part um, even in the future? So I, I think you are right. There are PE firms that take a very consultative approach. And you almost need to look at the stratosphere of PE firms from growth equity and venture capital up through your Carlisle, your Blackstone, your KKRs, right? And they approach working with their portfolio companies very differently, both individually, each firm works with their portfolio companies very differently, but also 
I would not suggest that most PE executives feel that venture executives do the same job as they do every day. Because mm. in the venture world, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a lot of, let me just help you move from being a startup to a mature business, right? Let me just let, let you, you know, let me help share some wisdom around how you build a, a sales channel. Mm. Uh, let me help share some wisdom on, on how you market and promote and brand your organization. And they do come with a tremendous amount of experience to do that. For PE firms, uh, it's not so much that they don't provide that type of coaching as well, but most of the PE firms we're dealing with are, are working with companies that have accelerated past that high growth startup phase and late stage startup phase. Uh, these are starting to begin to be mature businesses, these hundred 200, 300 million euro top line businesses. In those cases, the consultancy is there. It comes from what they call the operating teams, generally speaking. And these are operating professionals that may be consultants. They could be full-time employees of the PE firm. They could be management uh, team members that get dropped in after an acquisition of a company is done. So they'll buy a company and the PE firm will say, okay, Barbara, you're going to run sales and marketing. We've worked with you in the past. You know our playbook. You understand what we expect out of this company. And they'll put their own executives in place. And then there's some firms that go out and they say, listen, I'm buying the management team, right? My job is not to manage the business, right? But again, coming back to those few priorities, they're consulting still with those guardrails. So it's how do we achieve priority one? How do we achieve priority two? How do we achieve priority three? And that can go from authoritarian to coaching, right? From the spectrum, as far as how big that stick is. Um, so it, it, is, it is a really unique space. And each firm is in and of itself extremely different in how they deal with their portfolio companies. When you say that there are similarities and there are, of course, differences, is there something where we can something find like a common ground on um, certain kind of personas that we may find in private equity companies. What kind of people are there? What kind of different disciplines do I find within a private equity company? Yeah. So I think the so the, the different personas inside of a private equity firm uh, or even a venture capital firm, and just in general in growth equity, you have people that go out and raise capital. So they are the professionals who will be investing in businesses and have probably gotten to the top of the totem pole. And they're the ones going out and raising the capital for the fund. And that fund is what, from a, a money perspective, is going to be deployed to purchase the companies that they buy, right? So you've got your fundraising folks. The second set of folks are your individual investment professionals. And they may not be fundraising. They may simply uh, be on the investment committee. They may not be in the investment committee, but they focus all of their work on deal side activities. So they know how they're supposed to find um, assets because they know what the investment thesis is. And they're going to Eastern Europe. They're looking for manufacturing companies, generally low margin businesses, And their whole goal is to globalize. So those investment professionals are going out very much uh, as deal uh, execution individuals. That's their focus. 
There's another layer of individuals that may or may not be involved in the due diligence or in the final investment decision. Sometimes they are, and you're seeing more of that now. And those are the operating professionals. And they range as far as uh, their DNA from generalist consultants, former leaders in industry or sector, because if you're only buying manufacturing businesses as, as an example, you kind of want some people who've been in manufacturing for the last 20 or 30 years, especially if you're pulling 15 billion, right? So you, you hope that the person that has ties to that purse string knows what they're doing in that sector. Um, sometimes you have operating professionals that are not generalists. They're not uh, in uh, industry sector experts. They're line of business experts. So they just know how to run a sales and marketing organization better than anybody else. They know how to run a manufacturing segment of a CPG company better than anybody else, or they understand technology and digital transformation more than anybody else. So those are, for the most part, the different layers that you will see inside of these investment uh, operations, whether it's a, a venture growth equity or whether it's a large buyout firm. So, so now let these people meet us. Let's come, let, let come SAP into their place. Let's make, want us make business with them. Since their whole business model is about buying and selling, do PE companies choose their enterprise applications, for example, similar to their investment objects? Are they, let's say, choosing their or making their buy decisions dis dif different like other industries would do that we are working with? We knew we had to come to this question at some point and talk a little bit about SAP and what we're doing for private equity firms. Yeah. The answer is that that what we do is as applicable, if not more applicable, for PE firms looking to buy companies than ever before. For much of what we talked about already around the discipline, around optimizing processes, around efficiency. Um, so very relevant. I what we see and what we hear are that a lot of businesses are being evaluated much like homes that you're flipping. We used that analogy before. If you think that you can walk into a business that has absolutely no system of record in finance, has no structured manufacturing processes, has no analytics capabilities, let alone predictive analytics, that's next gen right? You may very well believe that I can buy that asset at a valuation that is appealing to me. And I believe that I can immediately go into that business and do some digital transformation to core processes or across the entire enterprise. And I will walk out with just that exercise having been completed and be able to make more money out of that business, right? So that's one certain, that's one option. I may realize I can go into this house, put a new roof on, put a new kitchen in, mm. put a new bathroom in and paint it. And I could actually sell it and I'll be done. Now, I, obviously that's a bit uh, simplistic. Yeah. What, what we do see though, is part of that investment thesis that you have when you walk into that business is in different shades going to be around growth non-organic and organic opportunities that exist for your business. On the 
organic side. I want to grow my business by growing the number of products that I have, the number of SKUs that I have. I want to grow my business by uh, setting up shop in different geographies and globalizing my business. Either of those two theses, for example, require technology in order to be able to achieve them, right? You'll need multi-language, multi-currency capabilities. You'll need to have HR systems that can uh, work from a compliance perspective under different labor and non-labor unionized countries. So there's a ton of technology that will have to enable good, solid processes for those businesses to grow. If I'm simply going to build more products and expand my SKUs, well, I'm, I'm going to have to have the right manufacturing and supply chain infrastructure to allow me to do that. I'm going to have to have the right distribution capabilities to do that. Pricing is suddenly going to be more complex. The number of customers, types of customers will become more complex. And all of these things are embedded by certain technologies that allow you to deliver those processes at excellence. And so I think a lot of private equity firms now during due diligence, and I think this is different than say 10, 15, 20 years ago, are spending a ton more time on what are the enabling technologies this business does or does not have that we believe it's going to need to have, whether it's SAP or not, if we're gonna deliver the outcomes that we're promising to our investors. And they're doing it in due diligence. Whereas perhaps years ago, it was, let's do that once we own the business, as opposed to let that be a linchpin of whether we buy that business. In fact, uh, we've been working with uh, a fund that I can't mention um, that's raising capital right now. It's uh, founders of a, of a very famous private equity firm, one of which has gone off and started his own firm. They're in the process of raising their first fund. And their underlying investment thesis is to buy businesses that are just running um, dilapidated IT systems that have uh, uh, immature business processes. And they believe the big part of the investment they're going to make in that first 100 days is to digital transformation. And that's actually not common. You don't see that in a ton of PE firms uh, investment thesis that, listen, number one, number two, number three, number four of my priorities is an immediate 100-day plan around digital transformation. That's occurring much more now. And I have a feeling, you know, given the current crisis, that's only going yeah. to increase. Sure. We talked before that. Um, I think one of the effects that COVID has is probably the last one has now realized what digitalization is all about and where where the needs are. But but talking about their business, if we like reduce it to, let's say, and let's call this end-to-end -end process of them like buy, develop and exit, at which point can technology help their business and support their decisions? I think all three, but I, I think really at the, the, the buy stage. So as early in the buy stage as possible, because the, the other thing reality wise is digital transformation is, is also a big change management exercise, right? And it's also not always super easy or super comfortable to manage through change management, right? That's a, That's a that's the hardest that's one of the hardest parts of digital transformation. It's not necessarily picking the tools or the technology or the bits or the bytes. It's the person who's used to doing this process 
the same way and has been doing the same process for the last 12 years. So how long do you want to stretch that uncomfortable time period? And I think if you're going to see the returns on big digital transformation, you can get digital transformation done quickly. You still need that year, that two years in order to start to see those big ROIs, right? To see that efficiency in your supply chain turn back around to EBITDA. You, 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 you've got to give it that time to do that. So if you wait too late to your exit, you're making a giant investment in a house essentially that you're about to sell in a year that you're not going to reap any return on. So I'm not doing a massive renovation of a home I'm selling in 12 months. I want to do that massive renovation before I move in. Mm. I want to move into a house that I'm ready to move into, right? That has the kitchen I want, the bathroom I want, the paint that I want, et cetera. So we're seeing investors look more now at making those digital transformation investments day one. And it's for all the reasons I just mentioned, but it's also because, look, day one, you still do have to have email systems. You still have to have customer documentation. You still have to have a general ledger. You still have to comply with SEC guidelines in the US. So you have to do those things and you're gonna pay for them anyway. So why rebuy old technology? Or why continue to cobble together old technology and put band-aids on things? Uh, maybe you do that at the end of the life cycle. You don't do it at the beginning anymore. You get it done. You put in place the technologies that are going to make your, your business world-class, or at least as world-class as it needs to be to generate the returns you're looking for, and you move forward. So I really think to your question of when are PE investors looking at this point at making investments in digital technology, when can digital actually make or have the greatest ramifications and generate significant returns for shareholders, it's in that buy period. So is it like, let's ask this question very simple, maybe a little bit too simple, but <laughs> it, it, so probably since we are very heavily in something like an analytics mode, data mining modes in this early stage of this process, um, are your, let's say, best sellers in your industry where, when you do business with private equity companies, are they in this discipline, analytics, data mining, and so on? Or are they like, uh, let's say, other lines of businesses which are very interesting for these PE companies? No, no, you're, you're hitting on a really good point here. I, I, this, is, this is one of the pain points for a lot of PE firms is regardless of what technologies these companies are running, uh, there's still a lack of confidence. If you were to go out and ask PE investors, what level of confidence do you have in the information you have about this business that you just bought? A lot of them would come back and say, we're still not 100% sure what we got. Mm. Now, a lot of that is it's such a competitive environment and there's so much dry powder, which means that people are rushing to make bids to win to deploy capital and are buying businesses with very limited information. Because from a process perspective, you know, you've got bankers selling these businesses. They give you very limited information and you need to make a bid on the company. And then if your bid is approved, which very often it's not, And by the way, how confident do you feel in the bid you're making based on the very limited information uh, that you've gotten? It's not until after that, that bid is accepted and you're granted exclusivity when you then can start to request a tremendous amount of information during due diligence. That's when you're starting to get more. But you also have a very short timeline. You may have 10 days. So in 10 days, do you really know with limited information 
what you really have in the business you bought. And so you have folks like Bain Capital and others who are spending a ton of time as soon as they buy businesses, putting in place analytic systems that are giving them and sucking in data from all different systems and trying to give them one version of the truth, because I don't believe and most of them would suggest they don't believe that they have all of the um, all of the insight as to what that business actually is, where it has deficiencies, what risks it has, and frankly, even more importantly, though, what opportunities it has. So they are absolutely uh, grounded by that topic, Alex. That's absolutely dead on. That remembers, um, I remember a quote I once read from a PE person who said, like, basically, I'm buying used cars all the time. And uh, I'm <laughs> not really know like how it's been treated in the last years and so on. And I probably will find out, but um, yeah. that's my business. And um, I just have, my, let's say, like you said, a certain limited amount of time to evaluate it and then just hope for the best and try to work the best with it. When you or when like a seller and so on would ask you, what are your best practices in dealing with customers from the PE industry, how should a PE company be approached sales-wise? To whom should I talk? About what should I talk with those guys? Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a that that's a really good question as well. Private equity executives uh, have a very finite set of objectives for any business that they own. And if you aren't able to tie back your business case to those objectives, uh, you're going to face tremendous challenges. So we've had a number of situations where sales professionals have come to me wanting to speak to the operating partners who are working every day inside of a portfolio company that they are trying to sell software to. And they will be so sure that they need to get on the phone and talk to that person about X solution, yeah, whatever it may be. It could be Ariba, it could be S4, it could be Concur, but have not actually spent the time and done the diligence of which there is a tremendous amount of information available publicly about why that private equity firm bought the business. Even just reading the press uh, press releases that come out after an acquisition, it's generally the owner or founder of the business saying how happy they are that they received this investment, how much they're looking forward to partnering with the private equity firm, and how they look to aspire to grow their business in the following few ways. Know what those few ways are then you'll generally have the deal lead. So the person, the investment professional from the PE firm who will then come out in the same press release. It's almost a template, right? And say, we could not be happier than to partner with this family who grew this business over three generations, has grown it into one of the largest brands in Europe. And we're excited to do the following three things. Grow it in the United States, bring it to consumers, et cetera. They tell you exactly what they care about. And if you haven't read that, then you don't need to be talking to them. And if you can't tie your business case back to things that let them achieve that, you have no business in the room. That's one. Tie your business case to the investment thesis, clearly and empirically. They're numbers people. 
right? That they're investors. This can't be just productivity gains, right? And that, that was an interesting sidebar, but I remember going into a, a meeting with a salesperson from SAP, a private equity executive who was on the board of a company that we were trying to sell software to, uh, and a few other people from that company itself. And at one point, the salesperson mentioned something about an increased productivity savings that they would gain over the next three years. And the private equity executive who was the interim CFO was pretty clear. And she simply said, tell me the people we will be letting go of. You just told me there's productivity savings, so I need the names of the people that will lay off because we'll be more productive. Now, granted, she was being stark for a reason, which was she had much more concern about the quantitative metrics that would drive an ROI an internal rate of return that would meet the expectations of the board and was less concerned about future efficiency potential savings. So again, go back to the business case, go back to the investment thesis, make sure you're not all qualitative, but very much quantitative. And the last thing, and it has to do with the time horizon that these PE firms have also frequently in meetings where before we go into the meetings, thankfully, we will do dry runs and we'll look at how we're planning on presenting our business case. And if your business case is a three to five year roadmap and this private equity firm, and believe me, this happens all the time. If this private equity firm has owned this business for four years and you know from just a brief look at their portfolio, they rarely keep companies for more than five. And you walk into the CEO and you try to suggest that they need to do something right now. And this something is a project that's going to take three to five years. You'll be walked out. Absolutely. Right. You'll get, you're going to be, you'll yep. be walked out. <laughs> it's completely not in tune to the way that they, the way that they do business. The last thing I'll say on, on, on how to, I guess, be more effective or not be ineffective, however you want to look at it is walk in with an understanding of the sector or industry. At SAP, we call it industry. Very often in the investment world, they'll call it the sector. The, the sector understanding, the expertise, and this is one of the beautiful things, and I think one of the reasons why so many SAP partnerships with PE firms exist is because we do bring such breadth and depth to the industries that we specialize in. When we talk about manufacturing, we talk about consumer products, and we talk about retail, we talk about high tech. We know it because we have a dominant market share position. We've been in it since the beginning of our company's existence. We have a good sense of what works and what doesn't and what makes what companies work different from those that don't. We understand the unique characteristic differences of Quartile One companies. And we can tell them, look, if you want to be a high class performing company in this particular area, industry or sector, these are the three things that everyone who is Q1 does that those that aren't do not. Now, you may choose to do only one and two of them. You may choose to do only one of them. But we do have that experience. And what's valuable about that is clearly you want to learn from that if you're an investment professional and you're deploying billions of dollars in an industry. Why would you not want that information from SAP? Right? 1% better decision, 1% less bad decisions. Why wouldn't I take that, that advice from our experts? There's another factor that I find quite interesting, and it does come into effect quite a bit with our discussions with PE firms. Let's assume we've got a 
70% market share in a particular sector or industry. What that means is that the strategic buyers upon exit for the company, whom will likely pay the greatest sum for the business, are six or seven out of 10 of them are running SAP. We already know what six or seven of them do. So if I'm a strategic buyer and I'm looking at a private equity asset, a portfolio company that I may want to buy, and I look at a few of them, the one that's easiest to integrate, the one that gels with my existing business the best is the one that I'm going to buy and pay more for. And private equity investors know that. And therefore, they want to understand in situations where we have a dominant market position, what are my competitors doing with SAP? And how do I migrate to best in class from SAP? How do I become, quote unquote, a model company? Because those model companies will get higher valuations. And I think that's another area that is really important if you want to be more effective working with, partnering, and selling to private equity. But the beautiful thing about um, your words are that they, in my opinion, are you, you, you do not have to just keep them to the PE industry. They are Correct. so valuable for any industry because you're basically saying like, don't try to sell medicine when you know nothing about the disease. <laughs> and um, this is something we really should remember like each and every day that um, these are the basic principles that we, we need to follow if you want to be successful. And no matter which kind of industry this, this is. I'm, I'm sure that many people will be, um, will, will laugh with what you, you have said and they will not be like finished with you after this episode of this podcast. So, Where can people follow you? Um, I can be followed on LinkedIn at Sean Epstein. Uh, I can be followed uh, on Twitter as well. Um, we can also uh, make sure that we broadcast the uh, external SAP private equity site to, uh, to all the listeners when we, uh, when we put the podcast out. They can find me a variety of ways. Actually, right now, they can find me at home, homeschooling my children in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and so I'm reachable by phone, by email, or any social media account. Perfectly. We, we will put your site into, definitely into um, the, the notes of the episode. And um, I can tell you, I learned a lot. It's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. And um, what we said at the beginning, I'm really looking forward to our next meeting which will be probably face to face as i hope and um, hopefully a part two of this wonderful episode absolutely thank you so much for the time this has been great thank you for letting for letting me be part of of your day and um stay healthy stay well take care do the same thank you so much be good thank you very much bye